Hello, Mainly fans, and welcome to 2024. Tiffany, happy 2024 to you. Happy 2024, Ian. And guten tag to those of you uh, joining the fandom from Berlin. Always love, uh, always love when uh, when new fans join us. Tiffany, what are we doing today? Today, Ian, we're bringing you a little bit of main true crime with some murder, intrigue, scandal. It has it all. Nice. And you are, uh, for those who who don't know you as well, you are yourself personally uh, very very interested in true crime. That is that's one of your one of your true passions. Yes, I am a true crime fan. Specifically, I enjoy unsolved true crime, um, which this this coming case is not um but it it's an excellent case because it's kind of a microcosm of what is happening in america you know specifically this this little portion of maine and other mill towns um right around 1850 there's a lot of shifts and changes and the story just brings them all together all right well sounds good to me and yeah, I think listeners are really going to enjoy this conversation that just finds so many surprising angles from this death of a factory worker in industrializing Maine in the 19th century. So without further ado, let's do this. So we are here today with professor of history and co-founder of the women's studies program at the University of New England, Dr. Elizabeth DeWolf. And we are going to discuss one of her works, um, the murder of Mary Bean and, or as she's better known, hope I say this right, Beringia Caswell, correct? Close. Beringera. Beringera. (laughs) (laughs) And so just to start, like what where does that name come from? Beringer. Is that a, she was a French Canadian immigrant or from a family of Canadian immigrants? No, actually she was American. Okay. Her parents uh, started out as farmers in Vermont, but the land uh, was more attractive in the Eastern townships of Canada. So they moved over the border. So the family um, were Americans. So Beringer was one of several children and unusual names run throughout the family. Uh, One of her um, sisters with whom she traveled to the textile mills was named Thais, like the opera. So Beringera, it was the wife of Richard the Lionhearted. So what Mm. this tells us is that Beringera's mother, um, aunts, um, father, we don't know exactly who, um, read history, read um, uh, classical mythology, there are mythological names that run throughout the family. So it's really, it was a, it was a lovely little surprise in thinking about uh, Beringera's uh, home life and family uh, as she carries this unusual name. That's very interesting. 
uh, you know, being the time period that it was and maybe access to those sorts of materials might not have been as widespread for everyone as they are today. So yeah, yeah it yeah, it does it does speak to the rise of uh, education, especially among women with academies and seminaries and so forth. It also speaks to the rise of the printing press and uh, popular literature being disseminated. And any number of you know family type publications would have you know fiction in them or mythological stories, um, perhaps even summaries of Shakespeare. And Shakespeare at that time was widely performed. It wasn't seen as the kind of you know, high culture production than it is today, but rather it was seen as something for the masses. So it's, you know, he had no idea whatsoever how the family encountered these, you know, classical and historical names. But it's fascinating to think about here you have this farming family from, you know, northern Vermont and then into Canada peppering their family lineage with uh, these names. True. Yeah. And it's sort of the era of Longfellow and these poets who are talking about really classical things, but also making them very accessible for, you know, different types of people and, and how popular uh, some of, you know, Longfellow's poetry was and drawing on historic themes. So there's probably a lot of that running in other areas. Too, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks to the new ability to digitally search these census records, historians have been able to uncover interesting idiosyncratic naming patterns and what they can tell us. And so I think that is one of those areas technologies is letting us do new kinds of you know, social history. And so I'm reminded of in the early 19th century, there was a Bolivar baby boom named after Simone Bolivar, the, the revolutionary from of the Spanish colonial America and that pops up in the in the census records for you know mid 19th century American adults and so I'm wondering how many other Beringeras there were and other you know kind of Shakespearean or royal or these these sort of ancient English figures uh popping up around this time that's a that's a great question I'd love to go back since at the time when I wrote the book um did not have the access to things like ancestry that we do today. So yeah. it would be, it'd be a lot of fun to go back and, uh, and look at that very question. How many, how many Beringeras um, were yeah. there in 1849 and 1850? I can tell you there were hundreds of James and Sarah Smiths, which was a very <laughs> difficult sure. name yeah. to research, but no, but methodologically, it's one of the very first steps that I take with all of my projects is mapping out the family and mapping out their neighbors, because that can often lead to um, a clue or a pattern or a relationship that other sorts of sources don't reveal. So having that map, and I literally am kind of old school, huge sheets of paper, and I draw it out, and make little arrows and who knows whom and why. And that sometimes helps um, with with some new insight that I might not have gotten some other way. Absolutely. I worked in the reading room for 10 years and helping people with genealogy has certainly given me kind of a new approach when I'm doing more historical topics as well, because the interrelationships of people is just so important to some of these stories, particularly this one, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So 
what is her backstory? What, how did she come to be Mary Bean and in her unfortunate circumstance being dead, not well, the other part is unfortunate as well. Can I, in, can I interject a quick question for, because yeah. I think Tiffany's major contribution, particularly this episode, is her her deep expertise and fandom of, of true, true crime. And my major contribution is is my naivete and ignorance of, of most of much of this story. <laughs> and so if we may, uh, you know, there's a bunch of murders. And so for people coming <laughs> to this show without a lot of knowledge about this case, why is it this murder that people, you know, that you wrote a book about? And um, then we'll talk all about Mary Bean and all the rest. But just sure. to, for the yeah. ignorami like me, just needing an intro point. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why write this book? Why this woman? Well, I stumbled on the case. Um, I found one of two fictionalized versions about the death of Bridgera Caswell uh, in a rare bookstore uh, in Alfred. And as I read this you know, novella, I suspected that it was fiction and it's highly fictionalized. But there was something about the specific details about Sacco, um, where I used to live, that rang true. And so I did some quick research in uh, Sacco newspapers from around the period that this novella was published. And it took maybe 15 minutes turning the page, finding full page coverage of, you know, the death of this young woman who was initially known as Mary Bean. And so this young woman um, who was first known as, as Mary Bean was um, a, a textile operative. She was a factory girl, as they were called, in uh, the Amoskeague Mill in Manchester, New Hampshire. And while she was there, uh, she met a young man from Biddeford named William Long, and he was a machinist. And the two became close and in the summer of 1849 engaged in uh, what were called criminal relations. And as a result of those criminal relations, uh, Beringera, Mary Bean, ended up pregnant. And in the early fall, uh, William was fired from his position. He was somewhat of a rowdy. And uh, he went back to Biddeford. And a week later, Beringera left the Manchester Mills and went to Salem, New Hampshire. At that point, she did not yet know that she was pregnant. A few weeks later, she did. And she came to Biddeford to find William. And uh, William and uh, Beringera have a conversation. And the upshot of that conversation was that he took her to a local physician named Dr. James Smith, who did not want to know her real name, no details. And he is the one who gave her the name Mary Bean. Then we could come back to why that particular name. But Mary stayed with him for almost a month. And he tried various ways to end her pregnancy, tried and true centuries old medicinal um, remedies. They did not work um, in her case. And so a surgical procedure was tried. And in the course of that, Beringera was um, internally injured, became septic and died. And so why this case? So when I first stumbled on this, I thought this is gonna be a straightforward story. 
Girl goes to Mills, girl meets boy, pregnancy ensues, girl dies from botched abortion. But as I started to look at how not only people in Saco, but people broadly in, you know, Saco, Bitterford, Maine as a whole, New England as a whole, any community that had a, a textile mill or a factory where large numbers of young women worked, um, really glommed onto the story because the story is not just about the sad death of a young girl. And it's really not just, it's really not about abortion, you know, good or bad, you know, sin or not. It was about women's um, control over their own bodies. It was about competing medical philosophies. It was about the tension between sex for reproduction and and sexuality, sex for sex's sake. It was about women's independence financially, earning cash wages really for the first time in American history. And that gave these young women some power and they knew it. Uh, it's also about women's geographic mobility. Beringera and her sisters went from their home to Lowell, to Manchester, and then Beringera went from there to Salem. She traveled to Biddeford. So financial mobility, sexual freedom, finance, you know, financial independence, these are attributes that applied to men, not young women. And middle-class society is thinking, is this a good thing? On the one hand, the managers and proprietors of the mills in Saco and Bitterford in uh, 1849 on New Year's Eve write, these are modern times of progress. Bitterford was the richest place per capita in the United States at that time period. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's I hard did not to... know that. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, you've got millions of yards of textiles coming out of there and a population of about um, 15,000 people. So yeah. per capita, it's, and the mills are just expanding, expanding, expanding. So here you have, you know, modern times, their idea was that their um, productivity and, and prosperity was just going to keep ascending. And here's a dead mill girl in a stream. <laughs> That's not good. So is the cost of economic prosperity the death of girls? Or another way to think of it, is it is it that the girls, I mean, Brindra was sadly dead. But what else was worrying, especially the middle class and the leisured classes, was the idea that young girls would aspire to motherhood and marriage and only motherhood and marriage and be perfectly happy in that role, was that dying as an idea? Because now you have all these mill girls who are delaying marriage, who are choosing um, higher education, who are choosing entrepreneurial activities, who are choosing not to return home and marry the farmer boy next door, but rather stay in the cities. Is that kind of a dream that's dying? So why this murder? Why this story? Because a, a an unfortunate young girl's death opens up a window to tremendous debates and 
and concerns and issues that are shaping the United States um, at mid-century, at literally mid-19th century. Wow. Now, I have several questions, but starting just because you called it a murder, and so I think our, you know, our audience would probably want to know. So is there evidence that you know, her death, if there were if it was in any way intentional, was there any foul play, or this was just a, a you know, a, an abortion gone bad at a time before even uh, bacteria had been definitively discovered as it would be in 1866? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The cause of death is septicemia is, um, you know, it just massive inflammation and infection from a poorly performed procedure. So why murder? Well, there was no intention to kill her. That's the last thing that James okay. Smith wanted. That brings okay. a lot of attention to you. And he did not want that for all sorts <laughs> of reasons. So James Smith is a legitimate um, physician. He's a botanic physician. At this time period, there's two primary schools. You know, the allopaths are the MDs from Harvard and Dartmouth and such. And then the botanic physicians, and there were several kind of varieties of them, used what we might call uh, natural remedies. They were uh, into herbs and plants and other sorts of things. They did not want to do the um, cupping and the bleeding and the leaching and the mercury that, that the allopaths were doing. So in that period of time, you have these two competing um, philosophies. So, which is all to say that what he what he initially tried, his remedies were savin, juniper berries, um, was literally millennia old. So why is it murder? Well, this is part of the interesting complication of this story. There is a conflict between common law and statutory law at this point in time. Common law, abortion is legal up till the time of quickening, when a woman can feel the fetus move. That was believed to be the moment of ensoulment, when literally a soul is placed <laughs> in the developing child. And so prior to that moment, by church philosophy of the time, when there's no soul, it's not life. So common law, abortion law, was coming out of poisoning law. It was to protect patients from um, being poisoned by their treatments. But statutory law is developing in a different way. So if something goes awry, common law, that would be uh, manslaughter. Statutory law is starting to say no abortion, no time, doesn't matter, you know, quickening, mm -mm, you can't do it. Statutory law says if you, a doctor, perform an abortion, that's a felony, whether or not your patient dies. If your patient dies in the course of you performing an act, which is considered a felony and would therefore mandate time in the state penitentiary, then the subsequent death is also a felony and you're going to jail for murder. If it had happened under common law, that would have been manslaughter and the penalty was a fine. 
So there's a conflict in Maine at this point in time. Smith was originally tried for second degree murder. On appeal, he was assigned an attorney, Nathan Clifford. And Nathan Clifford was able to see the conflict here and argue it should have been under manslaughter and because he had already served time, Smith eventually gets released. Nathan Clifford, a few years later, becomes a Supreme Court judge. So he Smith really lucked out with his attorney. So that's that's why this is murder. It has to do with statutory law and uh, kind of a secondary incident, the death of someone involved. It's a little, it's circular. It's kind of circular. Okay. The crime is determined by the penalty rather than the penalty being determined by the crime. And this might be a good time to mention, I mean, like you said, sort of, sort of technically abortion, depending on the situation, was not illegal exactly. And um, there's a great article in the Maine History Journal from a couple of years ago that talks about abortion in Maine and, and how much like many other things were changing right about this time, yeah. thoughts about abortion were changing as well. But up until this period, 1850, 1860, there's an estimate that about one in six women had an abortion at some point in their life. And yeah. um, that that was usually done by a family doctor, by someone you knew, um, your care was different afterward, your survival rate was better. And then somewhat around here, but definitely as you approach um, the 20th century, that's it's a very different scenario and the the risks are much higher and this is kind of an, an earlier example of of what can happen when you're more on your own and having to be a little more clandestine about the situation so, yeah so yeah. like many of the other things that this story is highlighting it's just like one more shift in time and yeah. um and kind of along with that and correct me if i'm wrong because factory industrial history is not my strong suit <laughs> at all, but when younger women in New England started to go off for mill work kind of earlier in the 19th century, it was kind of seen as like a perhaps a good thing that they could learn how to manage money a little bit better, that it would in effect make them a better spouse, um, give them a little more world experience. But I think around this time, as many other places, maybe Maine, not as much, are seeing more immigrant influence it's becoming a little bit more of an immigrant's job and a little less of like a good New England girl's job. And and there's all these other cultural shifts that are happening at the same time that are kind of making people, like you said, kind of worry about it course correcting too far and making people maybe not want to go down the family road or at least not as quickly, um, maybe have too many experiences before they do. So it's just- yeah. Like you said, it's a, a wonderful convergence of it's, many things. It's a fabulous period. I lucked out. And uh, it's <laughs> because it, exactly as you say, it encompasses. So you start, you know, in Bitterford about 1832. Um, and you have, you know, it, you know, you have girls coming to the mills and exactly that. It was seen as temporary, managing money, saving money for their future married family, Um Maybe not you know, being as much of a burden on their family, sticking exactly. around home as long, you know, it, getting it, out of the house. <laughs> because girls become, young women become um, economic drains rather than assets. Because at home, they're not weaving cloth. They're not making candles. They're not doing the stuff their mothers and grandmothers did. 
because of mass production. So this was a great way to fill their time. I believe, wasn't it like Lowell, the first company town and the first really big scalable textile complex in the U.S.? Uh, they advertised, yes, to middle class farm women in southern New England saying, well, you can rate, make money to support your siblings going to school and to pay for your dowry uh, yeah. and and yeah, and to do all this. And so it was very much and this might ring familiar to some modern audiences also. So it's kind of it's a part time job. And so therefore, or you're doing it for a while. It's not a career. Sort exactly. of like driving yes. for Uber or Lyft. It doesn't become your major source of income forever. And therefore, how we treat the working, uh, the workers, how we think about the place in the economy, it doesn't need to be thought of as, well, these people, this is their major career, at least not in the 1820s and early 30s. Yeah. But oh, also wow. like in the beginning, I mean, maybe this is what you're going to, I don't want to, but like in the beginning, like whatever that means, like kind, <laughs> kind of up until this time where 30s, I think a yeah. lot of things are changing, the mills were much more paternalistic where they hosted yeah. lectures and they mm-hmm. encouraged education and this little like community that you would have not experienced otherwise. But then I think, like you said, women are getting more interested in education and there's maybe a sense that it's pushing them too far in the other direction. Um, Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. In fact, the mill managers are very careful to make clear to these, you know, farmers and aspirants for the middle class, right. Um, That their daughters are going to be safe. There's a boarding house mother. They have to live in factory owned housing. There are curfews. There's mandatory weekly religious attendance. You had to go to, to, church. There are opportunities for education. At the Lowell Mills, there's even a magazine that the managers proudly say is, you know, organized and edited and run by the women. See, you know, uh, physical labor can be healthy for you. And instead of, you know, this, this idea that this is going to hurt young women's reproductive future, instead it's seen as healthy exercise. This is great. <laughs> poem from Biddeford that talks about, you know, to stand 14 hours a day in front of a mill, in front of a loom is really healthy and good for you. But so they're very careful about this. So what, what changes? The idea of women getting together and writing articles. And at first they're like, you know, oh, poems, it's spring. Look at the posies. I hear a <laughs> robin sing, you know, but then it's like, huh. I'm working, you know, X hours a week and I only get, you know, $3, but the guy over there is getting, so women, the young women start to realize in a very, um, very visceral way what labor is worth and what their own labor is worth. Not just that they can now have some money and go, you know, buy some candy, but they, they understand. And in fact, do support themselves and so they're understanding their labor in a real way and so what we start see starting in the 30s and particularly in the 1840s is labor strikes that are led by women and the first one in maine was in 1841 and it was bitterford and 500 girls walked out of the york manufacturing company saying we're not slaves and they wanted shorter days they wanted to be able to not living company housing. They wanted to be able to find their own housing. Um, and, you know, they had, they wanted 
the raise that was promised, you know, there was a cut in wages and the management said, oh, when we make more money, when we do better in the fall, mm -hmm. we'll repay it. And they never did. So, so the idea of this peaceful relationship between management and the workforce is really falling apart in the 1840s. Same time, now you're starting to see waves of immigrants coming into the United States and particularly in uh, the area of Saco Bitterford as well as elsewhere, you're seeing the Irish coming in. And so you've got all of this kind of hubbub, um, labor strikes, tension building, um, public worry. And what you see around by 1850 to 1855 is you see this shift in the mill force from kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant girls to immigrant labor. Immigrants lack social position. They lack any sort of privilege or power that even young white Protestant girls would have. So in terms of their ability to fight back or to, to make demands is minimalized in those decades. And in and the, the system of um, paternalistic housing falls apart because, you know, frankly, the management doesn't care. You know, it's like, eh, if that family gets sick, you know, there's another one waiting for a job. So that's another reason why Beringer's story is so powerful because we're we're right at that moment when we're going to see this shift. And then the other thing I'll also throw in as we're talking about big cultural moments is the founding of the American Medical Association. And their first cause is what they call criminal abortion. So 1855 until uh, Roe v. Wade and, you know. Now? Now. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so what's stunning, you know, why are we still reading a book that I wrote 17 years ago? Because <laughs> Bridgerick Caswell had more rights in 1849 than many women do in the United States today. These are the same things. We're, we're, we're arguing about the very same things, a little bit different context. Yeah. Uh, but To your point, I'm thinking on oh, there's, I mean, so many things you said fire the synapses. <laughs> but I mean, for we should, as historians, uh, including no doubt you noticed and pointed out with the uh, the Dobbs ruling in 2022, that the anti-abortion members of the Supreme Court chose to have their starting date for analyzing the, the historic question of legal abortion as with the 14th Amendment ratification in the 1860s. And as all the historians of this topic knew, one of the reasons they did this is because if they chose to root it as they normally do with the ratification of the Constitution in the 1780s and the Bill of Rights in 1790, there was much more of a tolerance for legal abortion, especially the much fought over early term abortion when most of it happens anyway. And so, of course, they decided to frame the, the goalposts of abortion is going to be rooted in the 1860s, but guns will be rooted in when the Second Amendment was passed. And like, of course, if we turns out as historians will all say, of course, change over time, nothing is static. And so these these more shift. Your mention about the American Medical Association put me in mind of 
another towering figure in, in Maine history, along with yourself, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich, and the diary of mm-hmm. Martha Ballard, a midwife. And one of the stories that historians such as yourself tell is that in the Enlightenment, by the time of the American Revolution and up until through the Civil War, one of these battles is about usually male professional organizations marking their turf and excluding women from the professional purview of men. And so one of the very important places that is, is, of course, the female role of midwives and women involved in birth and abortion. And that was a major area of female expertise that organizations, not beginning with by any means, but the American Medical Association, were very eager to uh, assert their was their exclusive purview and to exclude women from that. And so- And I think like also the professionalism angle in terms of Mm -hmm. like people who are performing, women or not- these more like homeopath type doctors, which were very popular. They did not want them part of medicine. Like medicine was science and operations and not herbs. And so women or not, they, they were trying really hard to edge those people out. I think. Absolutely. And so think about, think about who is founding the AMA. It's the allopaths, right? So they went to Harvard, they went to Bowdoin, they went to Dartmouth. Who else went to Harvard and Bowdoin and Dartmouth? The <laughs> Supreme <Congress>. Court justices. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And judges and lawyers. And so they have the infrastructure behind them, as well as, um, you know, in some cases, the wealth to push their agenda forward. And that's exactly, you're both exactly right. That's who they're, they're axing out of it. We we see a little hint of this in the trial, the murder trial of James Smith. A laundress is called to the stand and she did the washing for James Smith's household. And she picks up the laundry on the day that Beringer Caswell had had this uh, surgical abortion. And she picks up the linens and she testifies in court that she knows that Beringera had indeed been pregnant because of the stains and the smells on the linen. And the men in the courtroom are just like, ah, you can't, how, you can't tell anything from that. A couple days later, they have some Boston bigwig physician come up and, and he says, well, as a matter of fact, by the odor of, you know, such and such, I can tell that in fact, she was pregnant. At the end of the trial, the judge commends the Boston doctor for his expertise and says absolutely nothing about the laundress. And then a second example is, and see, the whole point is to try to say, was Beringera pregnant or was it just that her menstrual cycle was blocked? Uh, So they get a second woman who's in the neighborhood who gets on the stand and says, oh, yes, I saw Mary Bean. Uh, when she was living with the Smiths. And um, she absolutely, she was pregnant. And one of the lawyers says, you can't tell just by looking. And she snaps back and says, at 67 years old, I think I can tell when a woman is pregnant. And so you have all this woman's knowledge that's, you know, totally dismissed. And that's part and parcel of what's, what's going on at this moment. So again, here's another, and I knew I knew, you know, some of this, but not, not how this all came together at this moment. 
What else is happening in this moment? 1848 is uh, the Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls. Yes. 1848 is when uh, women students um, were admitted at several different colleges, including um, Oberlin. So it's this, you know, two steps forward, one step back, or maybe in this country, it's one step forward, two steps back. So um, it's this redolent moment of what's happening, where are women going, and then where are all these various pullbacks, which is what makes this story about a young woman who otherwise we would not have known if not her death becoming um, a, a, a crime of the century in Sako. Before I, again, more questions for you, but I think <laughs> keep, keeping on this theme of piling on the 19th century as not necessarily being one of progress uh, in certain areas, uh, this trial that you talk, the testimony puts me in mind of colonial America, of which I'm more intimately familiar. And the in the British Empire, in the colonies, women served on matron's juries. And I have no wish to idealize how women were treated in law or society in British colonial America, but there really was a much more established system of, for certain issues, juries of women would be called. And that was part of their duty as subjects. And they would do things like, yes, examining bodies of people for signs of either witchcraft or pregnancy or having had sex or various other kinds of things, right? And their their expertise was 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 called upon. And there's a great piece, and I'm sure, uh, Beth, that you, you might be familiar with it, but it's the, the case of Thomasine Hall in 17th century Virginia. Uh, Thomasine Hall was a, an intersex person who, uh, living near Jamestown, and this was a trial that happens, it was a series of cases that happened in like 1628, which is crazy to think that Virginia white Virginians were bothering with this in the middle of a war with the Powhatans. And you would, living in Virginia as a colonist in the 1620s is an absolute horror show. <laughs> I mean, for the Powhatans, it was too. Yeah. But that, so Thomasine Hall was an intersex person who would switch their ap apparel uh, and they were a working class person who had served both as a seamstress and a soldier, and they would swap their clothes depending on what they wanted to do. And eventually, Hall's neighbors kind of said, look, you got to pick one. We got to figure this out. And there were various groups of people who examined Hall, uh, and this included some of the sort of senior women of their community. Uh, to sort of assert their authority to decide who is a woman. And we're not actually going to let these men decide who a woman is. We're going to handle these things ourselves. Uh, and the story has other twists and turns that I think everybody in the 21st century would be surprised by, uh, good, bad, and indifferent. Um, but the, the thing, one of the things that the, the historian uh, talks about, and now I'm blanking on her name, sorry. I think it's Kathleen Brown, one of her early works. But yeah, one of the big themes of this case, sort of like what you found here is how like his social historians do, peeling back these different layers of a very local event and looking at, well, all these different sources of authority and who claims the authority. And part of the story is women maintained protecting their turf. Some women in the town, like other interest groups do. Yeah. Before we moved on, I wanted to give a voice to a nearby mill worker, one of the first union organizers, Sarah Bagley uh, at Lowell. 
who editorialized in the mills, the striking mill workers at Lowell, uh, and they formed the first women's labor union in the United States in the, the mid 1840s. And she published in The Voice of Industry, talking about how things had changed for workers like herself at this time. And she said, we are uh, I'm paraphrasing here that we are we are no different than a slave in Turkey or Carolina. She says, because it is not free will leading the laborer to work, but outward necessity that puts free will out of the question. And then said, we here are engaged in a movement, the aim of which is the elevation of the whole human race into a social condition of complete and universal justice. We cannot be blind to the fact that the laboring classes are everywhere greater sufferers than any others. And as you might expect, yes. So the employers quickly were scrambling around figuring out like, okay, clearly the factory newsletter needs to be shut down. And <laughs> yes, maybe we should be looking for, shall we say, <laughs> supplemental uh, workforce. And her mention of, and this was very relevant in the 1840s, of course, there were plenty, there were millions of legally enslaved Americans, in this case, Black, uh, largely in the, the Southern and then Middle States. And so when the mill workers, like Bagley and others said, we will not be slaves, sometimes they meant this very exclusionarily, where they basically say, we won't put up with this, but the people in Georgia will. And therefore, we are better than them as white workers. Mm -hmm. And other times they talked about universal emancipation or universal betterment. And it depended as case may be. But I wanted to ask when the employers in Biddeford and other mills tried to bring in what they would have thought would be a more pliable workforce. Did this include black workers after the Civil War or did that not happen in the places that you've focused on? Um, the. The population in the mills starts to shift in the mid 1850s and certainly right up to right before the Civil War, you're starting to see, uh, well, you are seeing the decline of those white Anglo-Saxon Protestant girls um, and being replaced by a labor, by a, a, as you say, more pliant, compliant labor force. I don't really know about after the Civil War. It's not okay. a period I've studied in Biddeford. But one thing I'll mention is, and this is, you know, one of these ironies about using this language of slavery in some of the labor protests, the textile mills are reliant on slave labor, on black slave labor from the Absolutely, South. Absolutely, yeah. Because that is where the cotton is coming from. Mm -hmm. So often I'm asked in, in, in talks, you know, were there any black girls in the mill? And, you know, were they involved in textiles? And it's like, well, yes, <laughs> the enslaved who mm -hmm. were... Um, who were on cotton plantations. Um, but after uh, after the Civil War, it's not yet a period I have uh, looked at, but certainly one that bears a lot of the interesting research. I can speak to that just a little bit, just since I have fielded some reference questions about uh, population in Maine and, and how that has fluctuated over time. Um, and I will say that the 1850s to 1880s was not a great period of growth for Maine in terms of population of any kind. In fact, I think in the 18, like between 1860 and 1870, you see a decline in Maine's population. Um, and we haven't even hit like a million people yet at that mm -hmm. point. I don't think we hit a million people in Maine until like 1970. Um, whereas Boston's like Massachusetts is surpassing that, you know, by this time. So 
what you see in the black population in Maine is that it's very closely mimicking the white population in Maine in terms of percentages. So they're unlike some other states that maybe have a little bit more opportunity or more rapid growth, um, or there's more usable land readily available um, that get more of the immigrants coming out of the South when, when emancipation happens, Maine does not experience that. It, it is just, it's not the place to be. And you kind of get to many other places that have larger Black communities like Boston or New York. Um, like if you were headed North, you know, you're going to encounter those places where there are more people who um, understand your culture and your heritage. And, um, you know, obviously Maine had some booming mills, but there's just more options that are a little more easily accessible to former slaves coming out of the South. So that, that I think is why you don't see that as much in Maine. Not that it didn't happen, but um, there weren't sort of like established communities here already um, that would be more welcoming. And I don't think the opportunity was available in quite the same way. And overall, statistically, people were, were kind of leaving the state. So depressing. No, <laughs> yeah. Oh, on that yeah, a, note. Such a um, happy topic. Such yeah. a happy. So Beth, turning back to Beringera's demise and the trial, who is the press blaming for this? It, does this become a story of, oh, the negligence of the employers putting this young woman in this position? Is this a case of women gone wild kind of where, oh, this is, you know, she ran a file or is it a, a predatory doctor and this is why abortion is bad or or none of the above or something else? I, I have a, a quick question sure. before we get that's related. So I think some of this answer might have to do with Dr. Smith's background, which might not have been of the highest caliber, but it kind of seems like he wanted to do a, a like this homeopathic type remedy from the start. But were there other doctors in the area? Because the um the the mill work or the mill owner is the one who suggests this doctor, correct? A manager. As, a manager. One of the managers. And so were there possibly other doctors in the area that might have done a better job? Like why does he do we have any idea? Is there any reveal about why he kind of picks this person with like financial, like cheaper, like more on that's the DL, a, like that's I, a, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So and 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 here's you know, here's a good kind of moment where we remember these are twenty year olds, these right? Twenty year olds, right? Beringera has no network to go to. You know, she can't ask her fellow mill workers in in Manchester or Salem because they don't know anything more about sex than she does, and. And, and here is William, and he's like, uh, what do I do now? So he turns to the mill manager, who is, you know, like the floor manager in the machine shop where he works. So that must have been the closest adult male to whom he could turn. And that's a really great question is why does the, why does that manager say, yeah, you need to see James Smith? And it probably is, maybe it's a little bit of, um, that they're they're drinking buddies he keeps it on the down low because the last thing you need is word to get out that girls are getting pregnant because that'll you know that's that's the end of your workforce so yeah so um so he sends him to uh james smith 
and you know he performs the deed kind of two thoughts then remind me to come back to the newspapers uh, sure. one of the questions you know we 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 kind of jump to well he must have been a scoundrel you know here's the drug now get out of here little girl but that's not what happens he cares for her for almost a month we do not know who suggested the surgical procedure was it Smith saying, I got to get this girl out of here. So I'm just going to do this deed and, and prompt the abortion. Or was it Beringera saying, please, 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 you have got to do something else for me. I cannot be pregnant. Do it. We don't know. We don't know. Or do we also it- know how far along she was? She was about 16 weeks. Okay. Okay. At the time of the abortion. Okay. Yeah. So, so we don't know. We don't know. So, which relates to our newspapers. So some of the newspapers are, um, especially the local ones, the Sacco, Bitterford ones are all, you know, it's, it's James Smith taking advantage of these young women. It's um, uh, young women out on their own, away from their parents. And they're too innocent to survive in this world. When Beringer's body is first found, she is described as a poor, friendless girl, a victim of a cruel, you know, a cruel fate, a cruel doctor. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of sympathy for her. Sokka residents take up a collection to send her body, you know, in a coffin back home. So she's poor, she's friendless, she's 100% a victim. By the time the the actual murder trial comes up a year later and and you get some different testimony from kind of the um, initial trial, the initial hearing was an indictment of Smith. Then you get the murder trial a year later. You get some additional testimony, for example, itemizing everything that's in her two traveling trunks, two traveling trunks. All the Thais must have been like an empress. Like, oh, this is too many trunks, too many trunks for that woman. Okay, exactly, exactly. (laughs) And you see that in the in the in the account, and she's got drop earrings, which is you know racy. And there's calling cards. There's a calling card with a man's name on it. No one knows who it is. So you get by the end of the trial, in many papers. Beringera is culpable in her own death. She was living a fast life, so they say. William Long, so what about William Long? Some of the newspapers say, hey, he's the one who got her pregnant. Shouldn't he be on trial? I want to know how many suitcases he has. Yeah, well, <laughs> he gets on the stand, and the poor the poor boy, he... <sighs> one attorney says, you're an arch seducer, you... you planned this from the start you know you you planned to seduce her in manchester and then when she showed up you know pregnant you you know you you allied with smith to get rid of it you're awful you know you're the you're the worst kind of villain and the other attorney gets up and says no 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 he's not a he couldn't plan this he's a rube you know he's dumb as dirt (laughs) he's he just is you know a machine shop rowdy and, and so the poor guy bursts into tears. Now, Long had learned his mm. lesson because the trial, the murder trial is really about the behavior of young men and young women. 
and getting their just desserts. Long actually marries another mill girl. He marries a mill girl. And as soon as the trial is over, he's out of here. And I uh, believe he goes to San Francisco for the gold rush. But you get a definite shift in tone in the newspaper coverage. So the trial ends, Smith goes off to prison. Long's role is like, is he, doesn't he play a role? And then even people are saying Beringera, yeah, maybe, you know, she's kind of culpable too. So you have this very gray situation and that's where the fiction comes in. So you have these fictional accounts that take the gray and make it black and white. And Beringera becomes this white, you know, oh, um, totally naive victim. And the author of the fiction comes up with this kind of composite character named George Hamilton, who's just evil, 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 evil all the way, evil all the way. And uh, that's how that's how it's worked out in these pieces. And that's of sad fiction. because both are a disservice to her because sure. she was a woman who was actually taking some agency over her own life yes. and, and yes. not this naive factory girl. And right. she wasn't like a evil seductress either nope. and there's no room for her in the middle she and, was she was a know, 20 year old doing what 20 yeah. year olds do yeah yeah that, and so, <laughs> that's where i think the you know you you just she, she can't just be herself you know she's either got to be this pure victim or this or, evil seductress and exactly. there's no room in the middle um, for me one of the most poignant moments in the research is when i found this little interview with Thais and it made its way into the newspaper and one of the ways she was able to identify that the belongings that were found at Smith's house had belonged to her sister was a little purse that was she said shaped like a bean and Beringera saved shiny nickels oh. it was like a little hobby she she liked shiny nickels so when I finally, to, and to me, that's just, you know, I save squish pennies. Um, yeah. You know, it was just so human. So when I finally got to see her grave in Canada, in Brompton, I brought her a nickel. Oh, and nice. I left a nickel on her grave. Yeah. Because she's, as you say, she was a person who was enacting in, in her own agency in a period when that was very difficult. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's lots of that and it's sad for George or his real name wasn't George. What was his? William. William, William Long. Long. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It's sad for William well, too, because he's like thrown in the mix here and he's villainized or, well, really that's kind of his only option, I guess, or, or dumb. And, and the, it's and like, yeah, and the thing is, he shows up. Anne Coveney, who's this Irish, um, uh, uh, yeah, domestic, he comes to visit her and check on her, right? He, and right, and and I, when and when Smith says, "Well, she died from typhoid," Long says he comes every single week on Sunday. It's his yeah. only day off, and they're comes, not dating anymore, right? No, like, no, he's just being a nice a good guy. guy. Yeah, and you know, Smith says uh, she died from typhoid, and Long says, "Well, then." I should do something about, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the burying. Body, yeah. And Smith says, no, 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 don't worry about it. I, I, I got it covered. And so Long is trying, he, I think he, he I think he was a, 
an okay dude an okay an okay 20 year old guy you know like (laughs) like yeah yeah as okay as like you know no offense Ian but yeah (laughs) no yeah 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 no I think being 20 it's it's hard to be good when you're 20 and all kind you know there's a lot of difficult being 20 so you know it sounds like he was doing the best he could Mm -hmm. uh as was she yeah yeah and yeah, that's always they're not even yeah. living in the same town when this happens like yeah. when she figures this out and she she it's been a while since i've read everything but she comes back to biddeford to talk with him and they kind of discuss so that i mean we don't really know what they discuss but you know should we get married yeah. should we not get what what should we do like what yeah. and they i think they both decide we don't really want to get married so X is the only option, you know. The most frustrating thing in the research is during the trial, when William Long is on the stand, he starts to describe that conversation, which answers, you know, all these questions we want to know. And the lawyer, you know, one of the lawyers objects and the judge rules that he can't continue because conversation with a dead person is hearsay. And so that's it. So, Which is true. I mean, and he's probably going to say the thing that puts him in the best light, but it would have been nice to know the rest of it (laughs) either way. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about the way Mary Bean was chosen, because doesn't that have something to do with Dr. Long's or um, Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith's past? Yeah. And yeah. So here was another, here was another surprise as I'm doing this research it turns out that Smith had been hauled into, um, not a court, but uh, hauled in front of a judge for participation in another murder. So in the 1840s, the tax collector of uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, was brutally murdered and a large amount of money was stolen. And just a uh, a week or so before his murder, the tax collector had been in Saco and he was looking for property. Saco Bitterford's booming. He was thinking, hey, I can, you know, get in on this. And he very ill-advisedly was talking with um, people in a tavern and kind of saying, yeah, yeah, I carry all my money on me. You know, the taxes, my personal money. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, I could buy property right now. Dumb thing to say. Goes back to Manchester, a man knocks on the door. It's it's one of the Wentworth brothers. And one of the Wentworths says, I need you to come out. Mrs. Bean wants to talk to you. And Bean was kind of a code for important business among this group of criminals who were involved in all kinds of things, including counterfeiting. And so Parsons, you know, the tax collector, I don't want to go out, it's dark. No, no, I'll walk you, blah, blah, blah. He ends up murdered. And then strangely, the Wentworth brothers, who, when they first arrived in Saco, really didn't have any money, suddenly become quite flush. And so they were suspected of the murder. Smith was a, let's say, compatriot of the Wentworths. He was never arrested for any particular crime, but he was definitely a hanger on. So when when they're all hauled into court or hauled in front of a judge for the murder of the tax collector, this is happening um, both before and after the Mary Bean case, but particularly before, uh, Henry Wentworth escapes notice of the police by dressing as a woman 
calling himself Mary Bean and skipping over the New Hampshire border to Maine. And so when, when Long shows up with Beringera at Smith's door and Smith says, nope, no names, I'll call her Mary Bean. He is making this kind of um, allusion to, and very poor joke, to kind of this underworld criminal activity that he's aware of or possibly engaged with, with the Wentworths and a few other people as well. So, so the name Mary Bean is given to her as really kind of a, a joke that only Smith and the Wentworth brothers would understand. And so I guess he was like, they figured he didn't have enough involvement with this other murder to put him in jail. Yeah, obviously. actually, yeah, actually what saves his bacon is his uh, uh, medical records, his kind of day book and his oh. day book charts patients he saw and he tended, he didn't oh. have a formal office but he he traveled around um, Sacco, Dayton, you know, um, Alfred. And so his day book, and then to add to that, because, you know, he could have faked it, right. but he has in there a record of buying various uh, medicines from the local pharmacist. And the pharmacist can testify and say, yeah, oh, absolutely. So on the day the tax collector was murdered, um, Smith was clearly in Sacco, so he couldn't have done it. Okay. They never so he did. really wasn't involved like at all like well no, i mean with he was actual murder <laughs> no yeah i think he you know my my sense is that he liked to talk a good game but that no no okay and no one was ever and actually they you know they they tried the wentworths later on um they never they never do find anybody guilty they never do figure out who actually killed the tax collector yeah, so that's another book but for another person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So you talked about some of the fictionalization. So I'm wondering, by the 1840s, uh, so there's some novellas or whatever, but is there other elements of what are the sort of tabloid or true crime kind of elements of the press that might have been paying attention to stuff like this? You know, thinking about clearly there's no Lifetime movies or Nancy Grace at the time. Yeah, good one, man. Yeah, but so <laughs> this is what it sounds like when you're talking about it. So I'm wondering, is there a 19th century version of that that's that's thriving in Maine at this well, time? It, part of it is sensational fiction. It, okay. it, and it covers everything, everything. Not, you know, murder was a hot, a hot topic, but seduction, kidnapping, attacks by Native Americans, kidnapping... These would well, sort of be like the penny dreadfuls, right? Like that's yeah. a little later, but yeah. kind of like that. Um, but that's the quality. Of, yeah. yeah. Of Wildly. Yeah. yeah. And, and they were, um, I, I could tell that the first of the two Mary Bean pieces, the, the author and a lot of them were hack authors, you know, they were just in like in a big studio and they'd say, you know, you write the one about this murder. They had the newspaper right next to them, which once I realized that was a fabulous source because I could work back and forth, back and forth. And I could see in the fiction something that would make me curious. Uh, for example, there was this very strange peddler 
character in the first piece. You know, he spoke funny like an old Yankee and he was selling stuff. And at first I thought, well, that's, they're just putting in that as kind of a stock <laughs> humorous character. But then when we come to one of the Wentworth um, murder trials, who provides the key evidence? It's a peddler. <laughs> and so it's like, wow. So that provided a, um, a great research source. But in bigger cities, and particularly in New York, and I think I'm remembering the title correctly, the National Police Gazette, it was just story after story after story. So the reporters would sit in New York City courtrooms and any time there was a great, you know, murder, prostitution, you know, kidnapping, incest with monkeys, you know, whatever <laughs> they would they would write. And that was just it would it, it wasn't prime reporting. It was oh ah oh you know it was just this kind of okay. gothic sensation. So there's this huge sensational press um at this period of time. And we know the Mill Girls read these and they were sold. They were cheap. They were available at train stations, magazine stands, and they all start the same way. As an author, I would never put forth this type of immoral behavior if not to offer to young people a lesson. So I'm doing this only to protect you. And then, boom, on we go to... Um, Which is nothing you know. like, you know, uh, in your episode earlier about Patience Boston cautionary tale 1735 yep. yes. 1736 yeah you know that's why we're doing this so that you know what not to do to ruin your life but also here's all the juicy details like yeah we won't, the won't yeah back. um and the so first novel pamela just, around this time yeah. in the 1740s yeah. is yeah. it's all about seduction and well all the rest and but oh it's a morality tale don't and, worry and susanna rouse and charlotte temple by yeah. the end of the 18th century, the best-selling book all the way up to um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. But then it's still in print all the way up to World War One. Wow. Hmm. And it's yeah. a tale of seduction. Um, and, oh, poor Charlotte. People were so moved by the story of, you know, seduced and pregnant and abandoned in America. And she dies just as her father walks through the door. <laughs> People would go to New York City to see her grave. It's fiction. Yeah. It's fabulous. <laughs> and in Socko Bitterford, we get these, the pair of, you know, um, Mary Bean pieces, one addressed to women and one addressed to men or girls mm -hmm. and boys. But it sets up copycat tales. And I found almost a dozen. Um, oh, wow. Dreadful huh? Socko, you know, the Socko okay. Factory Girl, the Biddeford Factory Girl. Um, and almost all of them, with one exception, end the same way. You know, girls either dead, insane, um, or a prostitute because of this path. And then, you know, and and they're very, you know, from 18, 1850 to 1852, and then goes on to another the, the 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 working out of dead mill girls shifts to girls who work in department stores or shops ah uh. girls who go to college girls who become secretaries and stenographers so kind of the arena shifts with where the um middle class or middle class aspirant girls are it's fast. It's fascinating. That's really fascinating. How 
I don't know how you would be able to research this very well, but as you were researching the story, how often were mill girls getting murdered? <laughs> like how, how much of a yeah. real concern was this compared to the hubbub that it caused? And were they really just blowing it out of proportion as a way to put a little control on society and its progress? Um, or was there a real concern that mill girls were getting murdered? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, maybe you could just read newspaper after news, but. Um, you could, you could yeah. read newspaper after, and you'll, and you'll see these stories again and again and again. Um, I don't think it was this huge crime wave i you know it's like today we always say you know we hear the awful things on the news but not the nice right. things that make us think you know oh the country uh, um and i think the same thing is true there so i think the latter of what you said is that it becomes a convenient um starting place to talk about other issues now that said young women being harassed young oh women sure being other kinds of assault taken or advantage problems. of assault. yeah yeah absolutely Absolutely. Sure. It is hard. It is hard to get at rough numbers because, you know, for the same reasons, you know, in, in any decade, in any in any situation. Yeah. Um, girls not having language to talk about what happened, humiliation, freeze response, you know, all, all you know, all the reasons why that can be underreported. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, we want to recommend to our listeners that they read your book. So if we could, the, the title again of your book, so people can. It's the uh, book is The Murder of Mary Bean and Other Stories. It's published by Kent State University Press. It's Lovely. available uh, with some local booksellers, um, giant online sellers, and from the press itself. And I hope, I think the main, I think I've, I might have seen a copy in the main historical society bookstore. It's always hey, a good place no, to buy your books. I, you Absolutely. definitely have one in the library. I don't know about the bookstore, but yes. I can provide yeah. if you need some. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beth, would you recommend if our listeners wanted to maybe learn more about the origins of true crime as a genre or this kind of sensationalized popular press or culture during the Industrial Revolution? Anything you'd recommend? There is a wonderful book called Beneath the American Renaissance that talks about um, all of these uh, writers and genres that are not Henry David Thoreau and Harriet Beecher Stowe and Walt <laughs> Whitman. And the author is David Reynolds. That would be a great place to start for those who are interested in, in sampling some of these. The other thing I'll mention is uh, Kent State University's True Crime Collection. And if you go on their library webpage and search for the True Crime Collection, you'll find um, just wonderful material. And if I'm not mistaken, um, several of the pieces are now uh, digitized. Um, and, and so if you look at like Beneath the American Renaissance and see a few intriguing titles, put them into Google Books or into Google and, and chances are good now. Um, that you'll find them online and they make for really fun reading with a grain of salt <laughs> there's another great book called the invention of murder and i don't remember the author's name but um it's more about crime in britain but it starts about 1800 
and goes through about 1900 and really focuses on the shift in how people consume this crime and how they're interested in it and what is sort of socially acceptable everything from like when public executions go out of vogue to like is it okay to take home an executed prisoner and electrocute their body to see what happens and put that on display and charge tickets for you know so it's it's a really interesting look at society and their relationship to true crime it is through a, a british lens but um there's there's some mimicking in america and then like in many ways there's a lot of things where you're like that wouldn't have happened here <laughs> mm -hmm. uh you know like in um, our more like puritan-esque society so um and then I, yeah. I i just saw another famous crime with main connections is the murder of helen jewett oh yeah i yeah, um, which is, just started looking into that yeah yeah, yeah. fabulous fabulous story yeah. and, and such a well-written book yeah well elizabeth dewolf thank you so much for joining us and sharing this amazingly multi-layered, multi-faceted story. Uh, this might be one of the my new favorite kind of dives in social history of looking at one event and all the different kind of ways to interpret it through, you know, that good historians like you are doing and that I think the lay public is not always aware of that kind of work being done. So uh, this was so generous of you to come by and Thank you so much. We hope to speak with you again sometime. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for the great questions. I always love finding something new to think about in uh, in my research. Excellent. Yeah, we hope there's new research to come. Love to yeah. see what you're doing next. So. Absolutely. 2025. That's oh. all I'll say. All right. We're, Excellent. We'll be waiting. <laughs> we are here for it in 2025. Yes. That's our show. Stay with us through the rest of 2024. We have a bunch of bangers heading your way. A lot of a lot of new topics as yet uncovered in the main centric podcast world. So really excited to bring those to you. Tiffany, uh, those who uh, are interested in, in growing the fandom, getting in touch with us, where can they find us in the world of social media? They can certainly check out our Facebook page, Mainly History. They can go directly to the Podbean page. They can check out our new Instagram page, Mainly.History. And they can reach out to us on Gmail at MainlyHistoryPod at gmail.com. That's right. And also the network formerly known as Twitter. We are there yeah, at forget. Mainly History. No, it's fine. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, we we love hearing from from the fans, and uh, you know maybe we'll start uh, maybe we'll start dropping some official uh, pet mascot content from Gabs and Lenny, the uh, sure. the official the official pets of the pod. Uh, Lenny's very excited about the the hoped for Maine Coon episode later this year. Uh, once we get that lined up, so he's he's a very social animal, though not a coon himself. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. And I know uh, Gabs is really excited about the uh, Appalachian Trail stuff being. Uh, oh, yes. A little hiker up. dog she is. Exactly. Yeah. She's exactly. Been pretty pent up lately with the weather. So. I know. That must be really hard on her. Yeah. She's been, she's been a little squirrely, but we'll get out there one of these days. All right. All right. Well, 
that's all for now, folks. Thanks, everybody. See you soon.